into it here. Luke chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 17. And he came down with them and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them." If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show them, show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. 
But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand together. Stand forever. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, we thank thank you for this, the words of our Savior and your Son. Father, perhaps the greatest sermon that was ever preached. But Father, we understand that it is nothing without your work in our hearts to give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Would we not be those who hear, but don't do anything about it? Father, we need you for that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, yeah, perhaps the greatest sermon that was ever preached. So if you came here to not expecting that, sorry. Well, you get it in some form, just not from me. Uh, at least we read it. Um, I, wonder if you, I wonder if you've ever thought of the word uh, topia, which I guess topia is not a word. It's more of a suffix, right? Like utopia or dystopia. Um, the thing about topias is our world is full of topias. For my basic definition of what, some of you are like, what in the world are you talking about? Um, Utopia would be um, a place, right? A set context, a certain context with certain conditions, certain groups of people, certain rules that govern that context and that place, right? You think about a utopia, a utopia is the most ideal place, right? The most ideal place where... um, Everything is swell and everything uh, is right and nothing is wrong. You think about what the people who lived in the capital, right, uh, in the Hunger Games. This is what they thought they had. This is what they were striving for. And this is the blissful ignorance of the lives that they lived, if you watch the Hunger Games, right, that they thought they had made their utopia kind of uh, disregarding all the other districts, right? Uh, Because all the other districts were living in what would be called a dystopia, uh, a place where nothing really is good and everything kind of is uh, wrong. Um, the thing is, is that we all spend our whole lives wandering through, in and out of, different topias. And again, I, I might, I, you know, sounds stupid that I'm saying topia when it's a suffix. But we've all spent our entire lives going in and out of certain contexts with certain groups of people. Each context governed by its own set of rules, right? Uh, When you first start school, kindergarten or first grade, right? You enter something brand new for the first time in your life where you're in a new place. Mommy's not there anymore. Now you have a teacher that sets the rules and you've got uh, a whole room full of people your own age, right? Uh, College is another one of those topias that you've now come into this new context with its own set of rules and its own uh, uh, peculiar, maybe, but uh, particular group of people. To this point in the Gospel of Luke, one of the things that Luke has been trying to tell us is that the advent of the Son of God, of Jesus Himself, into the world, in time and space, has actually ushered the entire world, the entire cosmos, into a newtopia. In other words, the coming of Jesus into the world, into history, completely restructures and reorients life as we know it. I'd I'd argue that's what all the Gospels are trying to get across to us. And that's what Jesus was actually trying to get across in his ministry. And tonight, actually, he preaches about that topia. It's otherwise known, maybe familiar to you, as the kingdom of God. 
Did you know this? That this is actually what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Remember, we looked at last week, Jesus did miracles. But we also looked at the fact that at, at a point at the end of chapter 4, all these people are flocking to Jesus because of the miracles that he's doing. And he says to them, I've got to go on to the other towns as well. To heal them? No. To preach the good news of the kingdom of God. The advent of Jesus into the world, into time and space, in history, has ushered the entire world, the entire cosmos, into this topia known as the kingdom of God. So that's what I want to look at as far as Jesus' sermon here, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I want to look at the upside down, no, not stranger things, but the upside down nature of this kingdom, uh, the unrealistic expectations of this kingdom, and then the ultimate fulfillment found in the king. Okay? So the first one here, the upside down nature of this kingdom. Just a quick read through the Sermon on the Mount, whether you've ever read it in Matthew or here in Luke as we read it, right? Just a quick read through the sermon. You read about this kingdom, you realize that this is evident. That this kingdom, as far as the other kingdoms in all the history of the world, is upside down. Right? You look at who are the blessed people in this uh, kingdom? The poor, the hungry, the weepers, the hated, the rejected. In other words, in this kingdom, it's actually the lowly that are the blessed people in this kingdom. Who are the cursed? Who get the woes? The rich, the satisfied, the laughers, the respected. In other words, those people whom every other society has viewed as those who have it all together. They are the ones actually that have something to worry about. Enemies and abusers even are loved, blessed, and prayed for in this kingdom. People give and get, but they only do it as they deserve in this kingdom and none else. No one judges anyone more than they judge themselves in this kingdom, right? It just takes a quick read through to realize that this kingdom is completely upside down. And another thing, when you start reading about this kingdom is what you realize is that it's actually completely foreign to anyone's actual experience in life. Who of us has encountered a community where these things are followed through? Right? Maybe you grew up in church and these things were talked about. But all of us in our experience know that these things really aren't common. They're hard. And we'll get to that in a minute when we talk about the expectations. But Jesus says that a key marker of his kingdom will be that it turns the normal ways of the world upside down. And we can see that in the things that he talks about, right? The gospel turns, the good news of the kingdom that Jesus preached, turns the categories of the world upside down. And so a definitive mark of whether or not you are a part of this kingdom and are doing the work of this kingdom is whether or not the gospel has also turned the categories of your world upside down. Because that is what the gospel does. And so if you want to know, am I a part of this kingdom? How do I become a part of this kingdom? It's when the gospel turns the categories of your life upside down as well. And you think about it this way. Do you ever stop to reflect, to think? What is the direction or the natural flow of my life? Which way is it flowing? Towards what does my life flow? My daily actions, my daily words, my daily deeds, my daily thoughts. How and where do they flow? Where are they flowing? What direction are they headed in? Better yet, what causes that current in my life? So in other words, when I am in different sets of people maybe, 
Does the current or flow of my life look one way here and another way here? What is it that is pushing the current of my life in whatever direction that it's going? Is it who you're with? Is that what directs the flow of your life? Maybe it's just what you grew up believing. Maybe you're still at the point where it's just what I grew up, whatever I grew up with, is that is the flow and direction of my life. And maybe you've even tried to question it or think about it, but you don't know how to do that. Maybe it's what you've experienced. Maybe something has happened to you. And that is actually the motivating factor and current and flow of your life. What is it? The gospel turns the categories of the world upside down. And so it will necessarily turn the categories of our lives upside down as well. Look at this kingdom again. And think about it. It is those who are least deserving that find the most open arms in this kingdom. It is the undesirables who find the most affirmation in this kingdom. It is the broken and the the oppressed that find freedom and healing in this kingdom, not the ones that work hard enough for it. What are we going to do with that? And again, for instance, college, maybe some of you, if you're a freshman, maybe you've been hit in the face with this already in the first month, right? College is that time where if you have any notion of like where my life is going beyond college, right, that you find out. How brutal the ladder of life really is, right? We all kind of have this sense that whatever we want to do with our lives is kind of a ladder. We've got to climb some steps or whatever. College is one of those times, I don't know, it was for me, I don't know about you, where you find out how brutal that ladder really is. Because maybe high school was actually that place where it was kind of easy to get to the top. Whether your teachers or your parents were able to boost you up there or whether just however hard you worked, you got there pretty easily, right? And you learn when you get to college pretty quickly that there are just as many people, if not more, than you could have ever expected that are just like that. And so you have to start asking questions. How am I going to get to the top of the ladder now? What am I going to do to stay there if I get there? What if all my hard work doesn't even get me up another rung? What am I going to do then? Or, you know, it doesn't take a, uh, a rocket surgeon to figure out, I meant that, uh, to figure out that we all long for acceptance, right? That is like one of the most common denominators of humanity. We all long for acceptance. What do you look for? What do you look to for acceptance? What is it that makes you feel like you've gotten it? What is it that you go after? Is it how smart you are? Is how smart you are make you feel accepted and worthy in this life? Is it how funny you are? Is it how attractive you are? How lucky you are? Whatever. How quirky you are? Whatever. Guys, is it how awesome your smile is and how many people laugh at your jokes? I don't know. It is how awesome your smile is probably, right? Uh, no. Is it the job that you've got lined up for yourself in four years? Is that what makes you feel accepted and worthy in this life? Girls. Is it the fact that you can fit back into that dress? Is that the only reason that you feel worthy? Is it how many people look at you on game day? What is it? What is the direction and flow of our lives? And what is forming or pushing that current? The gospel turns the categories of the world upside down. And what we're told is that when it really takes root in our lives, it turns the categories of our lives upside down as well. And the beautiful part, though, is that when that happens in the lives of Christians, the world takes notice. 
They can't help but take notice because of the upside down nature of this kingdom. One of the early, uh, early historians during the early centuries of the church, Lucian of Samosata, he said this. Their founder, Jesus Christ, persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despise their own privacy and they view all their possessions as common property. That was something that stuck out to people from the outside looking in. Their leader has convinced them that they're a family and they don't prize their own privacy. They actually share everything with each other. You look at all of church history in the early centuries there, the lives of Christians at the birth of the church stood out to the world. Because this kingdom turns the categories of life in our world upside down. Sadly though, right, we know that this can and glaringly has not been the case in this thing we call the kingdom or this thing that we call the church. So let's move on to the next one here. The unrealistic expectations in this kingdom. The unrealistic expectations in the kingdom. You can't read this and not see that it's like contrary to the normal ways of the world, right? But you also can't read it without realizing... That if your life depended on living up to this, we would all be up a creek. We know that. We feel that. Everybody feels that. If people want to, even people that aren't Christians, they want to say they like Christianity or they like Jesus' teachings, they point to the things that Jesus says in this sermon. Everybody wants to live in a society that does the kind of things that Jesus talks about here, right? But again, there's not one person on this earth that looks at this sermon and would, I mean, maybe there's one, but... We all kind of feel the weight that if my life depended on living up to this, I'd be up a creek. Because I know on my best days, I can't be all of this. Maybe some of it. You know, and there's, I don't know about you, if you're a Christian, if you grew up in the church, but for me, for the longest time, there's no objection uh, so common and more stinging coming from a non-Christian or someone who's been disillusioned by Christianity in the church then. Yeah, but it's just full of so many hypocrites. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've thought that and felt that sometime in your life. If that is you, I've got really good news for you. There is no group of people that Jesus spoke more scathingly about than hypocrites. Kind of interesting. There are admittedly great portions of church history filled with the church and God's people getting it absolutely wrong. Right? You know, for instance, one that sticks out to me, uh, I would like to believe this wouldn't stick out to me as much i mean i would like to believe that it would stick out to me just as much if uh if i didn't have a black child my young, for those of you don't know my youngest son is black but um you know the church i grew up in i love the church i grew up in it is a bible believing gospel preaching church and always has been but during civil rights you want to know what they did they stationed elders at the door to tell black people they couldn't come in on sunday morning what are you going to do with that? I don't, I don't quite know. I mean, praise God, they actually repented of that a few years ago publicly. But right, I, I love my church. I love everything, a lot of things that they've been about in my lifetime. But it's hard to think about that. And here again, if your problem with Jesus and the church and Christianity has something to do with hypocrites, I've got good news. Jesus has a problem with them too. He talks about it here. But the thing is, is Christianity doesn't claim that Christians are better people. Jesus said it last week. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, right? Uh, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But there is an alarming part here in this teaching. Look at like verses 27 through 26, the love your enemy part. Um, Give to people without expecting anything back. Or verses 37 through 44, um, you know, with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And you, you read all these things and like, great, but... Can't we all agree that if we really are going to like try to commit our lives to that, actually fulfilling any and all of that is pretty impossible. So does Jesus like actually expect us to do these things? The alarming part is yes. In the Sermon on the Mount, the version that Matthew records, he says that not one dot of the law will pass away until he's fulfilled it. And he actually goes on to say that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, who people in that day viewed as the most righteous people on earth, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus does expect us to live up to this. Because here it is. Jesus in this sermon is giving a new law for his kingdom. It's not new in the sense that we've never heard of it. There's actually a lot of Old Testament connections here. But it's new in the sense... That it totally replaces the old way of doing things. But you see, the problem is that um, the Pharisees of, J- of the leaders of Jesus' day, including the Pharisees, uh, had made the law become a burden, a slavery of do's and don'ts through this extensive rabbinic and, and, and Pharisaical code. And the people of God, whom God had promised in Genesis 12, hundreds and hundreds of years before, He promised that that people would be a light to the nations, right? That same people had become very exclusive and very clannish. And it's that type of culture, Jesus wants to say, I am bringing a new way of blessed life in this world, in my kingdom, in the kingdom that I am bringing. And he does it through four pictures. Look at the four pictures just really quickly. 39, uh, verses 39 and 40, right? He talks about this picture of the blind leading the blind. One of the things Jesus is making the point of, and he makes it elsewhere, is that Jesus wasn't just another teacher. He's not just another teacher in a long line of Jewish teachers. He speaks as one who had authority. People would remark that about him, right? Because he's the son of God. And what he was calling us to, and what he's calling us to in the sermon, is to see the world the way that God sees it. How am I going to begin to live into this kingdom? If this kingdom turns the categories of the world upside down, then I have got to stop, start seeing the world the way that God does. I've got to start striving for that. I've got to start seeing that the normal ways that I see things are actually contrary to the way that God sees things. And I've got to pursue that. Prize what the world calls pitiable. To suspect what the world sees as desirable. These things don't come natural to us. They don't. We have to work for it. Then he uses verse 41 and 42. This illustration of the speck in the log. This is like, this is like, right? This is how you Jesus juke anyone who like tries to confront you about something. Why don't you just take the log out of your own eye, man? Um, we're, all, we're always so quick to assume the other person has the log, right? Isn't that interesting how that works? You see, the Pharisees had fine-tuned the law in such a way that it completely missed the point of the life that God intended it to give. See, that's totally contrary. I mean, we're not in the Old Testament talking about the law right now. But God never intended the law to be a burden. He always intended it to be life-giving. All of it. Every part of it. And the Pharisees had made it such a slavery 
That it was completely missing the life that it lives. And you look at, look at all the rest of the things that Jesus talks about here. What is he calling us to? He's calling to us to act as God acts. How does God act? In one word, love. God acts in love. That's the kind of, I mean, that's all the do's in this sermon can be summed up by love, right? Jesus' call to this new law is not a call of duty, but a call of love. All the guys' ears perked up when I said call of duty, right? Um, just joking. We seek, as part of God's kingdom, as part of, part of Jesus' kingdom, we seek not to do what is right, but we seek what, to, we seek what is good, We don't do things just because they're right. We do them because they're good. Because they're right, yes, because they come from God. But ultimately, because they come from God, they are good. And so we seek good in the world and in our lives and in our relationships towards those, did you catch it, towards those who deserve it and those who don't. That's the hardest part of the sermon. Do all these things. Look, it's easy... To give to somebody you know is going to pay you back. Not so easy for someone you suspect might not. And verse 35 and 36 tells us why, right? What he says there basically is, this is what it's like to live into the love and the mercy of our Father. If we have trouble with these kinds of love, if we have trouble with these kinds of mercy, if we have trouble with these kinds of graces in our life, what it points to really is that we haven't experienced them ourselves in our relationship to the Father. That's what we need. And then that, that third picture, uh, verses 43 through 45, the tree and its fruit, what Jesus is basically saying is what we say and what we do is supposed to be of the same cloth. That's, what, that's the fruit that's supposed to be uh, being born in our lives. In other words, we're not supposed to be hypocrites. There's so many hypocrites in the church. Yes, there are. But Jesus says that's not the way it's supposed to be. And so we repent of that. And we don't try harder. No, we lean into the love and the mercy and the grace of God. The only way that this can be true of us is if it's true from our roots all the way out to our fruit, right? And here it is, just to sum all that, all these pictures and everything Jesus is going after is that moral reformation, right? To just go out and seek these things as the things that we now do in our life just because Jesus said so. Moral reformation that leaves the heart untouched is as useful, as the analogy he uses here, as tacking grapes on a bramble bush. It doesn't make the bramble bush a grapevine to hang grapes there, right? This way of life is so completely new. And Jesus has said it before and he'll say it again. It will take nothing short of a complete change of heart. That's the point. And again, I said it's new, but not like it's, not un, not like it's uh, unheard of before. Because we read this, God in Ezekiel 36. Listen to this. Something that he's getting at, I think, in, that the Sermon on the Mount is a fulfillment of. I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries. And I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you, get this, in the Old Testament, in a prophetic book. I will give you, guess what? A new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. It's beautiful, right? But again, you still might say, how can Jesus really expect this of us? He knows how hard this would be for us, right? Yeah, he does, because he lived with 12 disciples, and they were terrible. But that's not the point. Let's look at the final thing here, the ultimate fulfillment in the king. One of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite books, and maybe the most token RUF pastor quote, always. But the return of the king, right? The, the book, The Return of the King, the third book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, as the armies have been defeated and everyone's trying to pick up the pieces from all the battles and all the wars and things are trying to figure out how things are going to be now, we read this, Tolkien says that the hands of the king are healing hands and so shall the rightful king be known. Here it is. Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. Jesus preached a new way of life in his kingdom. And Jesus made it clear that he was indeed the king. What was he doing before the sermon started? Healing. You think about Jesus' ministry, miracles, miracles, miracles. But again, like I said last week, they always receded into the background of his preaching. He made it clear that he was indeed the king. So where is this kingdom? How am I going to know it when I see it? How, am I, how can I be a part of it? How will I know what to do in it? Well, the gospel and the Bible's answer to that question is simply this. The kingdom is wherever Jesus reigns. The kingdom is wherever Jesus reigns. Think about it. what is the purpose of all the Gospels, right? They all center on Jesus. Who He is, what He said, and what He did. You cannot understand any of Jesus' teaching apart from His person. That is why it makes zero sense to call Jesus of Nazareth a good moral teacher. It doesn't make sense because His teaching makes no sense apart from His person. Who he was, what he said, and what he did. Because living what Jesus says can never be divorced from right relationship with him. It can't. And we rightfully tremble here, right? Well, if we're paying attention, we rightfully tremble here at what this preacher demands. But we have to see it that it can only change us when we submit, great word, right, to the one who preaches it. It can only change us when we submit to the reign of the one who preaches it. So any kind of any phrase that you've ever had on a t-shirt or whatever, living this out, following through, being on fire, being sold out, any of that... All of it is fundamentally tied to bowing down to the authority of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And here it is, Christian or not, if you're honest, you'll admit that your biggest problem with living it out is precisely that. That if Jesus is who he said he was, if Jesus really did what he said he came to do, 
then we have to do every single thing that he said. And that is typically, if we're honest at the heart of it, our biggest problem with it. I left out one of the pictures, that last picture there that Jesus draws for us at the end of the sermon. Kind of a familiar one, right? If you grew up in church, you sang about it. About a house being built down to rock and then a house not so smartly being built on top of the ground. And the image there is that one way or another, the flood will come. Notice how where you build your house doesn't prevent the flood from coming. But one way or another, the flood will come and either you will stand upon the one who has already withstood it all or the house of cards that you have built for yourself will come crumbling down. That's the picture. Because here's the thing. Yes, this kingdom, it turns the categories of the world upside down. Yes, this kingdom is filled with unrealistic expectations. And so we know just at the surface of it that there is enough here and enough in our world to completely shake us and rattle us as to any hope of living any of this out. Right? You don't even have to try to make the illustration. All you have to do is turn it to any news channel for 30 seconds and you've already seen enough to be depressed. I wish that was a joke, but right? Y'all know that's true. Because there's things in our world that just completely show us this world is not as it should be, right? When we turn on the TV and there are white men in torches in 2017 marching on a college campus... Because they're proud of the color of their skin. Hopefully that shakes us to the fact that, man, this world is not the way that it should be. When we, you know, this is a few years back, but the Syrian refugee crisis, the most enduring image of the Syrian refugee crisis was a two-year-old little boy dead face down in the sand. That's enough to make us realize this world is not the way that it should be. Something is wrong. Enough of you in this room, this room is big enough that enough of you have brought enough things into this room that you know personally, and maybe nobody else in in this room knows about it, that you know from personal experience this world is not as it should be. Because something is wrong, and we know that the world is not okay. That the world needs something. That, man, we need something. But this is it. The answer to that is never and can never be something in here. It can't. Because here's the thing. As long as there has been people, people have been trying to find the answer in here. It doesn't work. We're not going to find it in us. Because as cheesy as it sounds, we need Jesus. We need a king. We need a kingdom. That gets it right. That has righteousness and justice and equity and grace and mercy and life. Because we know, even as awesome a group as we are, we can't even find that in here. This is my favorite quote about this sermon by a preacher named Sinclair Ferguson. He says this. He says, it's not a sermon about an ideal life in an ideal world. But it's rather about the, the kingdom of life in a fallen world. 
You notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, wait a few thousand years until I bring this. No, he says, do these things right now. And something else we read later is he says that as I build this kingdom, brick by brick, stone by stone, living person by living person, the gates of hell will not even prevail against it. Sounds great, right? The better question is, what if it were true? What if it were true? It's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of a kingdom. Father, one that's not dependent on us. Father, we've been building little kingdoms here and there as long as we've been alive. They're nothing but child's play. We need something that lasts. We need something that's whole. We need something that's perfect. We don't quite understand why you would call imperfect people such as us into it. But we thank you. And we pray that we would see this kingdom of life. That we would be this kingdom of life. And that this kingdom of life would be a reality in our worlds, wherever we find ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.